This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, my name is John Fleedham, and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Babak Mokalezi, uh, who's the chair of a subcommittee that developed the recent ATS guidelines, Evaluation and Management of Obesity Hyperventilation Syndrome, which was published this month uh, in the Blue Journal. Uh, Dr. Mokalezi is a professor of medicine and director of Sleep Disorders Center and Sleep Medicine Fellowships at the University of Chicago. Uh, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, perhaps we can start by uh, asking why did the ATS decide to develop these uh, clinical practice guidelines uh, on this topic at this time? Well, that's a great question. One of the main concerns that um, um, the ATS had and we had was um, the overall uh, low recognition of obesity hypoventilation in clinical practice. And in addition to that, um, you know, a significant variability in clinical practice. And, and frequently, uh, many of us that formed part of the panel being approached by, you know, ATS fellow members during ATS meetings, international meetings, asking questions about, you know, ways to recognize it, ways to treat it, ways to prevent it. So that kind of build the, the groundwork uh, in terms of noticing that the ATS audience and the ATS members had a lot of interest in this. And that's how the sleep respiratory neurobiology um, um, section uh, approached me. And, and, you know, we started working on this uh, guideline. Okay, now who developed these guidelines and, and what was your methodology? Well, the guideline, um, you know, the process of uh, developing a guideline is, as you can imagine, quite complicated. And the ATS, the American Thoracic Society, has a very rigorous method. Um, first, you know, um, ATS members like myself who, have, who are content experts um, in, in certain area, uh, express an interest and, and, and apply to the ATS because there are certainly costs involved in developing a guideline for any society. And that has to go through the board of directors, uh, in this case of the American Thoracic Society and get approval, kind of like a grant proposal. And uh, once the, during that proposal um, phase, which started back in, I wanna say um, early 2017, late 2016, we proposed a multidisciplinary, uh, diverse um, group of uh, both experts in obesity hypoventilation syndrome and individuals who are not necessarily complete experts in it, but have familiarity with it. And I think giving that variability in expertise in, in obesity hypoventilation syndrome and having people coming from a variety of backgrounds and variety of countries and lends more credence to our final recommendations to make sure the recommendations are realistic and, and applicable. So 
the, and generalizable to, to a large extent. Um, with that background, um, the way um, we, we went through this, once the proposal got approved by the ATS and funding was allocated, was to have multiple meetings um, by webinars trying to come up with consensus as to what are the questions that are important to clinicians and what are the outcomes that are important to both clinicians and to patients uh, and other stakeholders. And then, you know, myself as chair with uh, Juan Fernando Massa as co-chair from Spain, we drafted a series of questions in the format of PICO, which is patient for P, intervention for I, comparator for C and outcomes, PICO questions. And we submitted those to our um, panel members and we went through a process of, uh, essentially a process of elimination where people rate which questions are in their opinion of most significant importance. And this way we pick the most relevant questions that reach the highest level of importance. And we did the same process for the outcomes of interest. And this is important because from the get-go, we were instructed by the ATS and people who have experience doing this guideline development that is important to remain focused and not get overstretched with too many questions because then it's just difficult to complete the process. So you used the grade approach to label recommendations, either strong or conditional. Um, Correct. These, these are widely used. Can you summarize the implications of these terms for uh, the different groups, clinicians, patients, and uh, policymakers? Sure. So the grade, um, um, you know, stands for grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. And naturally, you know, when one develops uh, clinical practice guidelines, it has to be um, centered and based on evidence. And, um, you know, for certain areas, there have been multiple large, you know, clinical trials. So it, it you know, and then there's less heterogeneity and then one can come up with recommendations that could be quite strong. Um, but sometimes what happens is that when you develop uh, guidelines, um, the, the level of evidence may not be as strong as one would wish. Um, so based on, once we go through the evidence um, as a group, um, we had to decide how strong was the evidence based on what the methodologies were presenting to us. And you know, then you come up with strong or conditional um, uh, you know, recommendations. And by that we mean uh, when we as a panel say, um, we recommend, we usually use the word we recommend for um, you know, strong recommendations where there's you know, very good level of evidence. But when the level of evidence is a little bit on the weaker side, um, you know, we kind of uh, use the terminology of we suggest. Um, so, and, and that's the basis of it because one of the problems we ran into was um, in general, there were less, I mean, ideally we would have wanted to have more and more evidence. Uh, nonetheless, the number of, you know, randomized clinical trials or large clinical trials were, were sparse, leading to most of our recommendations being conditional or weak. So perhaps moving to your recommendations, um, 
the best place to start is how did you define obesity hyperventilation syndrome? Well, that's a great question because uh, frequently there is uh, some confusion about that. And I, I like to say that there are two schools of thoughts uh, on what is the definition of obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And a lot of it centers around whether sleep disorder breathing, be it obstructive sleep apnea or non-obstructive sleep apnea, uh, should be part of the definition. Some people think that in addition to obesity and daytime alveolar hypoventilation and leading to hypercapnia uh, without any other obvious causes such as parenchymal lung disease or neuromuscular disorders or other things that could explain the hypercapnia, uh, that by itself is enough to define obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Others argue that in addition to obesity and uh, alveolar hypoventilation leading to daytime hypercapnia, uh, sleep disorder breathing should be part of the definition. Um, one thing we try to avoid is in the guideline, try to define, uh, have a question centered around what is the definition of obesity hypoventilation syndrome, because that was not really the role of the guideline. But, um, but in essence, the way we defined it was obesity plus daytime hypercapnia or hypercapnia during wakefulness um, defined as you know, arterial carbon dioxide levels above 45 millimeters of mercury at sea level um, without any other alternative explanations for that hypercapnia. Uh, that's how we defined it, but we also made the comment that uh, sleep disorder breathing is invariably present in these individuals and sleep assessments um, are integral part of, of the workup of these patients. So let's now go to your five questions and recommendations. Um, what were the recommendations for your first question? Uh, and that was, should serum bicarbonate and or arterial oxygen saturation rather than arterial PCO2 be used to screen for obesity hyperventilation in obese patients with sleep disordered breathing? So the, the essence of that question uh, boils down to, um, you know, ultimately there's a variety of tests that one needs to do to um, make the diagnosis of obesity hyperventilation syndrome. Naturally, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. We have to make sure the patient does not have alternative explanations for the daytime hypercapnia. So with that said, um, you know, one does need an arterial blood gas, ideally, to make a diagnosis. And typically, there is a need for polysomnography um, to assess the presence of sleep disorder breathing. Um, in addition to, you know, making sure, as I said, there's no other reasons for hypercapnia, be it like chest imaging or spirometry, uh, maybe ruling out severe hypothyroidism or mixed edema coma, those kind of things. But um, one thing that many of the panel members commented on is that there is possibility that one of the reasons obesity hypoventilation syndrome is underdiagnosed is because clinicians, especially uh, pulmonologists or sleep specialists, do not routinely perform or order arterial blood gases on their patients. It's not standard practice in the management of obese patients with sleep disorder breathing. And we know that the prevalence of obesity hypoventilation syndrome, depending on which study you look at, in patients who are referred to a sleep center for suspicion of sleep apnea, who are 
obese, in that population, the prevalence of obesity hypoventilation syndrome is anywhere between eight to 20%. So, but if you really look in, in how you know, sleep medicine is practiced and what the guidelines suggest in the management of patients with sleep disorder breathing, performing arterial blood gases is not routine. So we think that's one of the reasons a lot of patients are not diagnosed in a timely fashion with this condition. And, and therefore, the, 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 the question was centered around the fact that is there a way clinicians could increase their clinical suspicion for obesity hypoventilation syndrome by, doing, by looking at some data that might be routinely available to them, case in point being you know, serum bicarbonate levels, because many of our patients, when we see them in clinic, they've had previous basic metabolic panels in the system dating back many years. And the other thing that we routinely do in, in clinical practice nowadays is measure room air pulse oximetry. So those are the two questions that um, form the basis of this recommendation. Is there any way one could use these routinely available data points to help clinicians either increase their clinical suspicion for obesity hypoventilation syndrome or decrease their clinical suspicion? And that's how um, we started examining the evidence. It. Okay, now, now your recommendations were based on whether people uh, had high or low to mo moderate probability of having obesity hyperventilation syndrome. Uh, what were the different clinical features of these patients? Well, the, the way we came up with that pretest probability <clears throat> was mostly centered on the severity of obesity. And the reason we did that is because that's the best evidence we could find in the literature. What we found is, uh, based on the published data, uh, and it's, it's obviously this is no surprise, it makes sense, the more severe is the level of obesity, the higher chance there is that the, the individual may have um, obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Uh, so most of the pretest probability as it stands in, in, the, in, in the guidelines is centered around the level of, uh, of body mass index, essentially. Um, but the other things we, we discuss is, um, you know, a, a typical patient with obesity hypoventilation, other than being, you know, typically severely obese, they have most commonly a lot of symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea as well. You know, loud, disruptive snoring, nocturnal choking episodes, or if they have a bed partner, severe witness apneas, and daytime hypersomnolence, um, you know, evidence of, in very severe cases, evidence of right heart dysfunction with evidence of pulmonary hypertension, lower extremity edema. Many of these individuals have significant dyspnea and exertion and morning headaches. So these are the typical symptoms that um, at least patients with significant obesity hypoventilation syndrome manifest. But a lot of the pretest probability was really centered around the level of obesity based on the body mass index because that's where most of the literature was. Uh, so we were really bound to what the literature suggests. And when we compiled the data, we noticed that the only you know, data point in terms of bicarbonate level uh, that we could use uh, was looking at the, the cutoff of 27, below 27 or above 27 partly because most of the literature was centered on that number, not on, there was less data on other 
levels of uh, cutoffs of bicarbonate level. Uh, and when we came, when it came to pulse oximetry, the data was even more sparse. So we end up not making any recommendations using the level of oximetry. And at the end of the day, the recommendation was um, pretty clear. What we notice is that if the bicarbonate level in the serum, in the venous blood, is less than 27 milliequivalents per liter uh, or millimoles per liter, uh, the probability of a patient having um, OHS, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, is extremely low. And even for the few people that are missed, their level of you know, daytime hypercapnia is probably on the very mild side. So we suggested that uh, using bicarbonate level less than 27 could be a good test to rule out. However, if a patient has a bicarbonate level that's elevated, uh, what we recommended is to move to a confirmatory test, obviously in this case would be an arterial blood gas, to directly measure the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. So the bottom line is bicarbonate level could be used to rule out but not necessarily used to rule in the condition. Thanks, that's very clear. Um, let's move on to the recommendations for your second question. And that was, should adults with obesity hyperventilation syndrome be treated with positive airway pressure, either CPAP or non-invasive ventilation, or not be treated with um, air, positive airway pressure? Well, the basis of this question was, you know, um, before we go into the third question, CPAP versus non-invasive ventilation, is there any evidence that using any form of positive air pressure therapy is useful to these individuals? And, um, you know, again, as you can imagine, most patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome that are enrolled in clinical studies, be it observational studies, clinical case series, or, um, or clinical trials, tend to be, you know, quite symptomatic. Um, I, as I always like to say, obesity hypoventilation syndrome really represents the, the worst spectrum of sleep disorder breathing. Uh, they tend to be more symptomatic and have worse consequences compared to even patients with you know, garden variety, severe obstructive sleep apnea. So with that in mind, you can imagine how um, there is um, you know, limited data in terms of people being treated um, or not treated. Uh, many, you know, clinicians don't feel that is um, appropriate to enroll patients in long-term clinical trials, patients with OHS, and not treat them. So that was one of the main limitations we had, and most of the data for this recommendation is based on, um, you know, observational studies. Um, and with that said, observational studies provide a lot of useful information. And one of the things we notice is how, when you pull the data, how um, you know, these patients have significant improvements in their quality of sleep, daytime symptoms, quality of life, um, and some series also even suggesting that there's improvement in, in long-term important outcomes such as um, you know, death. So you had limited data for your, your second question. So let's move on to your third question, which is, uh, should adults with obesity hyperventilation be treated with CPAP or with non-invasive ventilation? Was there more data there? Yes, there, was, uh, there were at least uh, several uh, clinical trials uh, 
many of them were short term, you know, like two months of follow up, three months of follow up. And uh, more recently, the, the Pickwick trial uh, was published in the journal Lancet. Um, you know, the first author is my co-chair, Dr. Fernando Massa from Spain. And uh, what, and, and in essence, when you look at the aggregate of the data, um, the studies suggest that in ambulatory patients, so who are in steady state, uh, without any evidence of acute on chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, and who also have, you know, significant obstructive sleep apnea, and, you know, typically severe obstructive sleep apnea, whether they get treated with CPAP or they get treated with uh, more advanced modalities of non-invasive ventilation, be it simple bi-level positive airway pressure without a backup rate or bi-level positive airway pressure with a backup rate or volume targeted pressure support, the data suggests that there's not that much difference in, in most of the outcomes, um, at least in the long term. The caveat for this question that is important for, for our listeners to understand and for our readers to understand is that this recommendation is really um, for patients who are in steady state chronic respiratory failure, not people who have had recent hospitalization um, and not individuals who don't have significant obstructive sleep apnea. Because the way we think about it is that there are two types or two phenotypes, if you will, of OHS, grossly speaking. One is the majority of them who have pretty severe obstructive sleep apnea in addition to daytime hypoventilation. And then there's another group that has either no obstructive sleep apnea or milder forms of obstructive sleep apnea and they just have worsening of their sleep, worsening of hypoventilation during sleep. So, and they represent maybe 20 to 30% of patients with OHS. So this recommendation of CPAP not being significantly different than non-invasive ventilation applies to great majority of patients because the great majority of patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and by great majority, I mean 70%, have pretty severe obstructive sleep apnea. And in them, as long as they're in steady state uh, without any acute exacerbation, uh, CPAP did not appear to be significantly different than NIV in the long term. Now, your fourth question I liked, uh, especially because it reflects sort of what I see in clinical practice almost on a daily basis. And so the question there was, should hospitalized adults with sus who are suspected of having obesity hyperventilation syndrome, in whom the diagnosis is not yet be not yet been made, be discharged from hospital with or without CPAP treatment until the diagnosis of obesity hyperventilation syndrome is either confirmed or ruled out? Yes. Uh, so this question, uh, you know, from the get-go, um, the panel members knew that we're not going to find too much data for this question. But all of us recognize that this is a question that frequently you know, ATS members um, and other clinicians ask us at international conferences, they ask, you know, us as, you know, content experts, what do you guys do? How do you manage these patients? So we thought, even though there is paucity of data, uh, it would behoove us if we don't, you know, tackle this question. And, you know, one of the things we set out to do was to find studies in which either all the patients were hospitalized or 
a portion of the patients in the description of the methods were described by the authors that were enrolled in the study um, while they were hospitalized. And then what we set out to do was to reach out to all of these investigators and ask them to share with us um, the information on that subset of patients who were, um, uh, who were um, enrolled in these studies during hospitalization because of acute and chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure um, in whom OHS was the main consideration as diagnoses because without you know, COPD or other reasons, neuromuscular disease or other reasons for hypercapnic respiratory failure. Um, and um, we were lucky because we identified 10 studies and out of these 10 studies that included these type of patients in their cohort, um, we were able to get data from nine of the investigators, nine studies, um, which amounted to a little bit more than thousand patients. So, but, but again, the challenge, the data suggests, based on, as we've written it in the guidelines, that these patients would benefit from being discharged from the hospital, even if they have not undergone formal polysomnography or positive airway pressure titration, because they tend to do worse. But it's important for, for our uh, listeners and for people who read the guidelines understand that these recommendations are very, very limited because there's a lot of bias in these studies. We don't, know, we don't know, for example, because the data does not come from randomized clinical trials. So there could be a lot of bias on why some people were started or discharged on PAP therapy, yet most commonly non-invasive ventilation versus some people were not. And um, that's why we strongly urge, uh, you know, uh, our scientific and clinical community to, um, consider moving forward with performing clinical trials uh, on this topic in which patients get randomized to getting discharged on non-invasive ventilation versus being discharged to undergo outpatient evaluation without getting non-invasive ventilation. This is quite relevant because in many uh, geographical locations, for example, in the United States, frequently it's very difficult to um, get these devices for the patients uh, in a short time span that we have, uh, especially nowadays that everybody's trying to reduce the duration of hospitalization. Um, so it's very easy to give a recommendation that patients should be discharged on non-invasive ventilation. But when it comes to implementation and feasibility, it becomes quite of a challenge. And we recognize when we wrote our recommendations that there's multiple stakeholders. Um, there are very different, um, you know, patterns of practice of medicine based on which country you live in. So before we implement this as standard of care, I think the data is important to understand that the data suggests that there's a signal, but I don't personally, as a chair of this and who wrote this, I don't consider the data to be strong enough to not pursue this area further in terms of clinical research, because I think this is an area that needs to be better studied. So we as clinicians have better understanding as to what's the best way moving forward with these patients. So one of your specific recommendations was that all patients discharged from hospital on empiric treatment 
uh, either CPAP or non-invasive ventilation, then have an outpatient workup, including a sleep study. Um, why did the group recommend this? Well, we think um, there's two reasons. One is we recognize that um, you know, advanced modalities of positive air pressure uh, or non-invasive ventilations could be quite costly. Uh, I mean, if you think about um, you know, volume-targeted pressure support or um, with automatic you know, expiratory, pressure support, uh, expi expiratory pressure adjustments or AVAPs, AE or IVAPs um, or more advanced modes of mechanical ventilation could be quite costly and sometimes unnecessary. Um, therefore, a respiratory polygraphy or polysomnography in the laboratory could be quite informative because first it will tell us whether the patient has obesity hypoventilation with severe obstructive sleep apnea in whom they may easily respond to CPAP as an outpatient once they go, once they get over their acute illness after hospital discharge, or whether indeed there are the minority of patients who don't have significant coexistent or concomitant obstructive sleep apnea, and they just need uh, non-invasive ventilation as opposed to CPAP. So I think the polysomnography or sleep study will be important to identify which type of subgroup of patient with obesity hypoventilation they, they fall into, those with severe OSA or those without severe OSA, because that could dictate in the long run as an outpatient, whether they need to be on non-invasive ventilation or they can just be on, you know, plain old CPAP. Um, so at the end of the day, even if the patient gets discharged on non-invasive ventilation, um, we think it's important that the patient undergoes um, you know, significant evaluation in the, in the sleep laboratory, ideally, uh, to make that assessment. The other, the other challenge we had with this recommendation was what levels of positive pressure should they be discharged with empirically? Um, and even though in some of the studies from which we obtained data from the investigators, they had done some, some type of titration in the hospital and while the patient was hospitalized, many of them, that data was not available to us. So we could not give a blanket recommendation that patients should be discharged on this form of non-invasive ventilation with this level of inspiratory support and this level of expiratory support and this level of backup rate, respiratory backup rate. So, you know, in that sense, the clinicians are kind of left in the dark what level of positive air pressure the patient needs. And that's why I think um, it makes sense to make sure these patients undergo some form of titration. Uh, now your final question was, should weight loss intervention or no such intervention be used for adults with obesity hyperventilation syndrome? What were your recommendations for this? Well, um, I think many times, um, we as sleep specialists or pulmonologists focus on how to make patients breathing better, how to improve the sleep disorder breathing with positive air pressure therapy of whatever modality. But more commonly and more frequently, unfortunately, we ignore the main cause. And obviously in obesity hypoventilation syndrome, it goes without, you know, um, you know, any argument that obesity is, is part of the definition and that's what really causes the problem, especially severe obesity. So um, by not addressing obesity essentially is doing a disservice to the patient. 
Now, when you look at the literature, um, you know, those commercially available programs to make people lose weight typically achieve some degree of weight loss, but, you know, even intensive lifestyle interventions like the ones that have been performed in patients with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, they tend to be not sustained for long periods of time. And um, at least in that subpopulation of prediabetics and diabetics, they don't seem to reduce cardiovascular risk factors. And in aggregate, when you look at those well-performed studies, um, they tend to lead to around 10 kilograms on average weight loss. And looking at patients with obesity hypoventilations, which typically tend to have body mass indices above 40, um, that degree of weight loss usually does not lead to resolution of obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Um, so the question was, well, what degree of weight loss can we, in reviewing the literature, what degree of weight loss do we think these individuals need in order to get you know, a significant um, impact on, on obesity hypoventilation syndrome? And, and based on our review of the literature, and, and, and I'll grant it, and, is, and, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, the, the literature is quite sparse on this. It seemed like, uh, you know, for real impact, patients need to use, lose around 25, 30% of their actual body weight. Now, we all know that that degree of weight loss is quite challenging for patients and being able to sustain that weight loss, even for those few that are lucky and are able to achieve it, sustaining it over long-term is also quite challenging. And therefore, our view was, you know, intensive lifestyle interventions, albeit, you know, <laughs> might be useful. Um, we, don't, we didn't think that it would lead to significant resolution or significant impact on obesity hyperventilation syndrome, which essentially leaves you with bariatric interventions, you know. So I think um, there's some data on bariatric um, procedures in patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome. But one of the challenges that we face uh, is many, many studies where, you know, large clinical trials, either they don't mention that what proportion of patients had obesity hypoventilation syndrome because they don't assess for it, or the few that assess for it, they actually exclude them uh, from these clinical trials. So we're left with a few you know, observational or case series to examine and come up with some, you know, basic recommendations. But our view is that 25 to 30% weight loss is really what's necessary to make patients uh, get substantial improvement from obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And in order to achieve that degree of weight loss, essentially you're really thinking about uh, bariatric procedures. So do you have specific recommendations about which patients with obesity hyperventilation syndrome should be referred for bariatric surgery? My view is that um, all of us as respirologists, sleep specialists, or intensivists, when we encounter these individuals um, in our clinical practice, we should have a serious discussion with them and their family members about weight reduction surgery and um, refer them to our bariatric uh, in, uh, specialist, so at least they can have a discussion, a frank discussion about risk and benefits. But 
my personal opinion is that before these patients are referred to uh, bariatric surgeons, it's important for us as specialists to have a clear plan with our bariatric surgeons because at some institutions, just because the patient has obesity hypovanished syndrome, they don't do surgery on them, which, you know, is kind of circular reasoning, right? I mean, these are the patients who need it the most, but the surgeons are concerned because they may have worse outcomes. Um, and, um, and it becomes a catch 22. How do you deal with that? And uh, personally, I believe that to reduce post-operative complications, uh, these patients would benefit from being on some form of positive airway pressure therapy um, to improve their daytime hypercapnia and hypoxemia and improve sleep disorder breathing before they go for surgery. Uh, but, but my recommendation is every single patient with severe obesity that has led to you know, one of the most dreadful complications, respiratory complications of severe obesity, in this case, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, those patients should have a frank discussion with their providers about the risk and benefits of uh, bariatric procedures. Now, you've mentioned several times that all of your recommendations are conditional or, or weak due to the limitation of the available evidence. Um, what are the research opportunities which you identified in this process in the, in the management of obesity hyperventilation syndrome? Well, um, many. <laughs> uh, one, one of them, as I spoke a little bit earlier, was um, what's the best approach in managing patients who are about to get discharged, people who survive hospitalization due to acute on chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, suspected of having of it being due to obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Now it's time for discharge. What's the best course of action? Now that they've stabilized, is it okay for them to get discharged and come back to the sleep clinic or to the pulmonary clinic and eventually get referred to the sleep lab, a process that may take two, three months, or should they be discharged on some form of therapy? In this case, like non-invasive ventilation. I think that area needs to really be studied before everybody reads our guidelines and say is written on stone and everybody needs to be discharged on non-invasive ventilation. Uh, I strongly urge our community to, to tackle that question. Um, the next area that I think requires a lot of research is bariatric procedures. Um, because one of the concerns is um, whether patients with, say patients who are having difficulty tolerating positive air pressure therapy, can they just go undergo um, uh, bariatric surgery as a first line therapy, not as after undergoing positive air pressure therapy for you know, a few months, for example. And, uh, and at the end of the day, doing high quality studies um, where people get randomized to bariatric surgery versus no bariatric surgery. But one of the challenges in doing studies, researching bariatric surgery is cross-contamination. You know, you enroll people, they consent to undergo bariatric surgery, but then at the end of the day, they decide not to undergo bariatric surgery and vice versa. People who get randomized to not undergoing bariatric surgery, and then they just go and seek bariatric surgery from some other center outside of the research study. So these are obviously very challenging aspects of doing a well-designed clinical trial um, that has, you know, um, behooved us as, as a community thus far even in, in, in the area of obstructive sleep apnea. 
Well, this has been uh, very helpful. I want to thank you and your group in terms of developing these guidelines. Um, do you have any final points you want to emphasize? Well, I think uh, it's important to, to consider that um, our hope is that the, num uh, the, the information and uh, background research in this area will increase over time. And hopefully, you know, the ATS um, will examine the more recent published literature and more data will accumulate and this will serve as a catalyst so more and more research is done so in the next say three four five years we can come up with a meaningful update of these guidelines for our community. So I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Lazy for, for doing this podcast. Um, to the listener to read the article discussed in this podcast please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also stay subscribed and updated whenever new episodes are, are available. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.